Welcome to Filmstrip, movie reviews presented by Continuous Play Podcast. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. I'm Ron. Today we're excited to announce a very special guest co-host, Justin from the Generation Y and Peripheral Podcast. Hey, how you guys doing tonight? How you doing, how you doing tonight, Justin? <laughs> I'm doing great. <laughs> we are doing great. Justin, tell our audience a little bit about yourself and your shows. Uh, I've been uh, doing the Generation Y podcast, which is a true crime podcast, since 2012. Uh, so I've been around a while. <laughs> That's like pre-serial when you know everybody started doing a true crime podcast. So, um and during the, uh, the generation Y, since we cover so many, you know, horrible things in society, you always brush upon, uh, mental illness, sexual assault, drug addiction, all these things that you really don't have time to really talk about when you're trying to tell a story. So I started another podcast called the peripheral where I interview folks about those type of topics. So they kind of go hand in hand, I think. Very cool. I, I've been a listener of the Generation Y since the early days. I think I came in around episode four or five and have uh, oh wow have stuck in. So I've been around a long time. Yeah, we've been doing this one. Film strip in one way or another has existed since 2010. Ron's been with us for the last two or three years and came in mm-hmm. on on a set of Golan Globus notes that uh, we've never uh, forgotten. So. Um, but yeah, so, but yeah, I've, I've been listening to your show for a while now. Ron's awesome. wife's a big fan. So. Nice. Uh, yeah. My wife, Holly has a generation Y t-shirt that she was wearing just the other day. <laughs> How you doing tonight, Holly? Well, Justin, you and I, uh, had been talking online through Twitter mm-hmm. and things. And I, I decided that in 2017, I was going to just reach out to different people to have different guests on the show. And yours was like one of the big ones. I was like, if I can get one of the Generation Y guys, if I can get Justin in especially, this will be a really fun thing. So we've been kicking around for a while, and you picked out the movie we're going to do tonight. And I'll tell everybody, we're reviewing John Carpenter's The Thing. And I'll get into the usual preamble in a bit. But you had kicked that to me, and I said, yeah, absolutely. And Ron got involved in this because Ron and I have this thing where, with our other friend, Nick, we will review some of the like worst things ever put on cinema uh, at yeah. all. And I remember one day Ron sent me a note and said, uh, I really want to do the thing because I need to do something good for once. <laughs> and so, uh, and we just released, as we're recording this, is the day we released the show for The Sand, Blood Sand. Anybody that's listened to that show knows what we're talking about. And I have I saved the note that Ron sent me. He said, Man, the thing is going to look even more awesome after The Sand. I said, how could it not? <laughs> it's it's all, one of my all-time favorite horror movies. Uh, I mean, it's up in my top five for sure. So it's a good, it's a great choice. Well, fantastic. We'll get to the background in a second. So, of course, we're talking about The Thing starring Kurt Russell, Wilford Brimley, Keith David, Richard Bowser, T.K. Carter, and Donald Moffat, directed by John Carpenter, as I said, released in 1982 on a budget of $15 million, grossed over $19 million at the box office, but was not considered a success. In fact, Carpenter will tell you that this cost him another job 
job shortly thereafter, the fact that it wasn't a hit. And up until recently, he used to get really mad when people tell him they loved it because he said, where were you in 1982? When I needed you. So you mentioned, Justin, this is one of your favorite things, though, or no pun intended. And what are your favorite films? So when did you first get exposed to it? I mean, I'm 40 years old now. So in 1982, I was a little kid. Mm-hmm. So I, I couldn't be there to support John then. Uh, but it was... <laughs> Um, I'm sure I was in my late teens by the time I heard it, which was probably, you know, 1988 to 1990 is when I finally saw it. And it was, you know, back in the days of Phantasm and, uh, you know, uh, Exorcist and and what have you. So, uh, yeah, first time I saw it, the special effects just blew me away. And I had no idea what I was watching. So that's what really grab me because I'm one of those anti CGI guys <laughs> uh, wisely. Um, I got into this because of Halloween. I've told this story on the Halloween retrospective we did a couple of years back, but I, long story short, I ended up seeing Halloween at a much younger age than I probably should have, but with my parents involved. So my dad though was a big sci-fi guy and he loved the film alien. So right after I saw Halloween, he showed me alien, which I was just you know blown away by. And then he said, okay, now you got to see The Thing. But he actually got me to watch The Thing from Another World before I saw the John Carpenter thing. Because I had seen it on the television scenes in Halloween, and I wondered what that was. And he said, oh, you got you got to see that one and then see The Thing. So I saw this at a very young age, and I don't think I got it at all. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I didn't, actually. And it wasn't until very late teens that I went back to it and watched it again. And it's been a while since I'd watched it uh, before we decided to talk about it here. So mm-hmm. Ron, what about you with the thing? Uh, well, I worked in a video store for part of the nineties. Um, and it was always one of the more popular, uh, boxes. Um, so I probably got introduced to it through, probably one of those like hundred scariest movie moment type of things that they were doing in the late nineties. Um, but, uh, I really didn't check it out like you guys until I was already, you know, into adulthood, mostly because I think when I was young, I caught the blood test scene on TV and just noped right out of the movie for a good solid five years after that. (laughs) That was just it, right? (laughs) So yeah, uh, just the, the screaming blood was, was all I needed to. I no, I couldn't. I remember when it, you know the uh, the scene happens. We'll talk about it later where the guy's arms get clamped off when he's trying to revive the oh, uh, yeah. the person that's down. And I I've never forgotten that uh, scene at all. So what what about the the original though, and then even the 2011 prequel? Have either of you seen those? Um, I've seen both. It's been a long time since I've seen the original. Uh, but I remember that. It, they were always going through rooms and opening doors and you never knew when the, the alien would be on the other side of the door to grab a hold of them. And in the beginning of the 1982, the thing in the beginning of the film, they have the game show where they're like, what's behind door number one? What's behind door number two? And I thought that was sort of a nod to the original. Oh, that, I'd recall um, that. That's great. So. Yeah. Um, and then the new thing, I just... I liked the storyline. I actually didn't mind the characters, but the CGI just 
ruined it for me, and I'm not going to cuss right now because I don't know if you feel out cussing on your we, podcast. Yeah, we we uh, we allow depending on the rating of the film, so you can go as as much as you want. <laughs> it was horrible. I I just it ruined the movie, and I hated it. And and another reason why I hated it was they actually in the uh, John Carpenter's the thing. One of the scenes the where the uh, the helicopter comes and lands at their fort. Um, they originally had the helicopter flying over a mountain and blowing up and then the guy coming over and shooting people. Uh, but they thought, well, that's too contrived to have the explosion on the other side of the mountain. And then in the remake of the thing, that's exactly what they did. Yeah. <laughs> so, which makes no sense at all. So yeah, I um, just, yeah. Yeah. I well, like I said, I'd seen the original one, and I saw the 2011 when it came out in theaters because I thought, you know what, this is a bold idea. Anytime you're going to do a prequel where you're telling me we're going to end right where the other one begins, I'm already intrigued to see if one you can pull that off, and two, can you tell anything? And I thought the story was fine and the execution was okay. It just kind of left me flat. Like when I walked out of it, I said, I really want to go watch the 1982 thing now. And I don't think I've ever seen the 2011 again until we were watching, you know, getting ready for this, and I watched it again. But I, I watched it once and, and was just sort of done with it. What did you think, Ron? Uh, yeah, I actually watched uh, The Thing from Another World probably two years ago. And then um, I did a live blog of it for a long defunct horror movie website I had with a friend of mine um, during one of those. PCM like nights of horror or whatever that they do around October. And I actually, I, I tried to look it up today and I couldn't find out for sure one way or the other, but I thought I actually reviewed the 2011 one for Den of Geek, but I, I really um, am not a hundred percent on that because at this point I've been there for oh, geez, probably 10 years now ish close to it. And, uh, I've lost track of all the things I've done for them. I was going to say, the memory of that review has got to be buried under a Walking Dead or a Game of Thrones episode somewhere, man. I mean, your, your writing is prolific. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I love just talk about thinking from another world for a minute. I love those kind of fifties monster films, like, um, or horror films or scary films. Like, you know, the envision of body snatchers, the original ones, one of my favorites. Uh, I even went back and rewatched the Michael Landon. I was a teenage werewolf when Brian and I reviewed, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 2 Freddy's Revenge. And I will dare anyone, if you will watch that Michael Landon movie and then watch Nightmare Mirror two, you'll understand that movie a lot better because they're the same thing. So, but exactly. yeah, but I, I love that kind of stuff. I've always loved the you know the the fifties, in particular the ones that were rooted in the the Red Scare and stuff like that. There's such a politics of their time, you know. And uh, I've I've been a big fan of that. But I want to ask both of you where you are on John Carpenter films in general because. I will say now I'm a John Carpenter apologist and I will say that there's some of the stuff he's made. That's not as good as the other, but I like his stuff in general, even when, uh, you know, it's become kind of fun to bash him. I, I, I want to hear Ron's answer first. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I am a, I, I think I'm a huge John Carpenter apologist too. I think he's great. Um, even the stuff that isn't very good, like, you know, ghosts of Mars is still, kind of interesting um i even watched um oh what was the one he did for 
I even watched that cigarette burn thing. I think he directed for Masters of Horror. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and I've actually have been looking at live tour dates, thinking about making a trip up to Chicago to watch him play movie themes live. So uh, you could say I'm kind of a fan. His his theme songs and stuff like the that's great driving music. I'll put that out there for anybody. The the Lost Themes album. Yes, absolutely. Which is weird that he didn't do the music for this one, but I guess if you can get Nicole Morricone, you kind of have to. Yeah, exactly. So, and I, while well, I still make an argument, he had a lot to do with it. But I love all his early stuff. You know, this is sort of a kind of Metallica sort of deal. I liked everything up until Justice for All, and then after that, I could just do without it. <laughs> <laughs> and with John Carpenter, it's it's kind of the same. His old stuff is impeccable. It's perfect, and I don't know what went wrong. I don't know with Ghost of Mars. I and, and I have to say that John Carpenter always has that theme of you have something evil, you have a monster, you have whatever. And superior firepower is what takes it out. <laughs> but mm. in Ghost of Mars, it, it was just over the top. It was like a, almost a caricature of his normal sort of theme. So I, I just... If, I, it, lost it for me i feel like that one somewhere or another got away from him along the lines but like i mean you look at you know, chris halloween's obvious right but like even the fog which the remake of that's rather dreadful but when you go back and watch that 1981 it's not half bad it's kind of ridiculous but it, it sort of works as like the most serious scooby-doo story ever made you know, it's kind, of, it's kind of on that level. The Escape from New York's great. Christine is what I think is one of the best Stephen King adaptations ever done. And that's that still works as a film. And then, I mean, even you get into stuff though, like They Live. I mean, how can you not love that? I re I rewatched In the Mouth of Badness recently. I don't know if you guys have seen that one lately, but that's one that I would hold up that says works pretty good still too. So. I, I mean, and when did uh, Ghosts of Mars come out? That was like a 1990s film, right? Yeah. Yeah, so I everything in the eighties he did, I, I top ten stuff, man. I loved it. <laughs> yeah, Ghosts of Mars was uh, two thousand one. Um, I'm gonna say that his his end point kind of for in terms of being quality would be um, uh, John Carpenter's Vampires. Which yeah, I think is ridiculous, but and a lot of fun, mostly for James Woods, but. Uh, I can see that it's definitely even a that's even a step that, that's a step down even from uh, like Escape from L.A. Yeah, uh, that one's definitely on the lesser end, and it's not one that I would go back and revisit often. But uh, again, you know, the the man's got a touch with it, and I think the thing about Carpenter films, the ones that work the best, are the ones that have that central theme of evil again, but they're also very minimalist in nature. Like the story's really simple. Like we, we go through the plot summary here in a minute. The story of this is really simple. When you boil it down, it's all in the interaction and what you think you see or what you think you hear. And then the guessing game that he sets up in this movie. And yeah. this, this is all just a big whodunit. And you know, old Agatha Christie stories, you know, that's what they're all built on is, is that, simple tenet and i think he's a master of understanding that so uh we've gone into it a good bit here ron i'm gonna throw it to you give us a plot summary for the thing for anybody that maybe hasn't seen it in a while a 12-man research team at a remote antarctic research station discovers an alien buried in the snow and ice once unfrozen the shape-shifting creature wreaks wreaks havoc creates terror and begins killing the team one by one helicopter pilot mcready 
tries various methods to determine which of the remaining crew is actually the alien being in disguise. The Kree speculates and intends to hibernate until a rescue team arrives. He and the remaining few decide to dynamite the complex, but as they set the explosives, the alien monster transforms into something much larger and attacks. The Greedy triggers the blast with a stick of dynamite, which destroys the base. As he sits nearby while the camp burns, team member Childs reappears, claiming he was lost in the storm. Exhausted and with no hope of survival, they acknowledge the futility of their distrust for whether or not one of them is the alien, and share a bottle of bad scotch as the snow falls and fire slowly burns. How do you know it was bad scotch? <laughs> it's, it's J&B. That's the official Scotch of Giallo movie. It's, it's awful. That is yeah. true. So they, also a college memory, sad to say. But uh, <laughs> lots of places we could start here with this. But I, the three things that really stood out to me, I was kind of looking at this film and I started thinking about it, was there's really like three big things Carpenter's into with this. And it's survival, masculinity, and suspicion. And those three things seem to kind of circle each other around this plot and around all of these characters and how things go. And for me, the thing that really works in this film is the fact that you don't have anybody here that's such a big star and so recognizable that they dominate the screen. Like Russell's obviously probably the biggest star out of any of them. But at this point in time, nobody would have really known that, I don't think. And even now when you look at him, he's always best when he's unassuming in some ways, at least to me. So to me, like the, the ensemble here and to have it be all men is a real gamble because that's, it's not like Carpenter can't write women. It's not like he's not, you know, Kubrick or something. He doesn't know what to do with them. Like he can write good female roles. I mean, he, you know, Laurie Strode is the free runner to something like Buffy, the vampire slayer and stuff like that. So he obviously knows how to do that. The fact that he decided to do this as a project of, you know, an exercise of understanding masculine, and then in the context of survival and suspicion is something that's really stuck with me about the film. Is the three things I saw at least. I throw it to you guys. Do you see the same things? Yeah, I think so. I I thought it was a little odd that it was all male cast, but I mean, when I was a kid, I didn't. It's only now that I go back and think about it, I think yeah, it's a little ballsy. <laughs> yeah, that's. Uh... That seems to be like a recurring theme in, in a lot of John Carpenter's movies, especially his early work, because you've got, uh, I mean, even like from Assault on Precinct 13 on, it's been, the survival has been one of his main, uh, essentially one of his main motifs. Uh, Escape from New York does delve kind of into the masculinity because you've got the ultra cool, you know, uh, Snake Plissken. Uh, so, yeah, that's uh some interesting uh, theory you got there, Jay. I mean, it's just yeah. just stuff that I've seen, and it, it it makes for interesting discussion. Because again, when you you've got these men in this isolated, like the most isolated place you could think of on the planet, right? And they're there to just do work. And the one of them that's like the most macho of all is the one who's the non scientist, McCready. He's just the pilot. You know, so he's there and he he's obviously a heady guy because he tries to play computer chess and he gets mad at it and pours a scotch on it, which that's an expensive. Um, I mean, it's one thing to break a controller, but holy cow. You know, can you imagine? Yeah. But to watch him sort of against the other um, characters here and the, particularly the scientists and the base chief and stuff. I don't know. I just find the, the interplay between all of them very interesting. And uh, I, I feel about this film a little bit the way I feel about Blade Runner is that I don't know if like the first time through you really 
get all the layers of it necessarily. And uh, unlike Blade Runner, I don't think it's so hidden that you have to like beat your head against it to maybe figure it out. I think this one reveals itself over time, but it does take some peeling back. Yeah. And Blade Runner came out the same year, didn't it? Yeah, right at the same time, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why um, they say the thing didn't make as much money as they were expecting because Blade Runner came out, I think, the same week and was number two. And the thing was number eight at the box office. Mm. What well, I mean, I thought it was a great flick, and even for '80s horror, it was pretty well done. Uh, I I know that John Carpenter's criticized it for uh, I think the uh, the soundtrack, <clears throat> the score, even almost got a Razzie award, and he hated the poster because he thought it looked like a slasher film, and. I, he just nitpicks this movie to the point where I, I'm like, what? <laughs> What's wrong with this movie? It's so good. The paranoia, the, the, the inner party conflict is perfect. It's, it's believable. And all the characters are believable. I mean, that's what carries the movie are the characters. It's not even really the story after a while. Do you think um, this is, I'm just going to throw this out there. Do you think John Carpenter nitpicks this movie so much because whatever project he lost because of the thing's lack of success was something he really wanted to do. Yeah, I think so. I, I think the fact that it didn't do well and got him fired, uh, ticks him off. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and I think, well, I think it did at one time, like I say, it, the more recent years he's softened on it a bit. Um, I mean, the man is in his seventies now, so he is starting to yeah. soften a little bit, even for John Carpenter, who's, you know, may, I mean, the man, it maybe weighs 110 pounds and he's made out of half Marlboro and half, you know, scotch. I mean, this, <laughs> the man is just grizzled, but, but he, he softened it a little bit, but for a long time it did make him mad. And I can understand that. It's like if, I don't know, it's, it, it's like if you start to, to talk to Aerosmith about one of the records they don't remember recording, you know, like they're like, well, I can't really help you with that. You know, so they don't have any real affinity for it. I, I just looked it up. Uh, the thing he lost out the opportunity to do was Firestarter. And he'd already picked Richard Dreyfuss to be the lead. He had two guys working on the script. Like he was set up to just go right into Firestarter from this. And when this wasn't successful, they dropped him off of Firestarter. Well, how can you imagine Firestarter if he had done it? That would, wow. So, yeah, better movie. Yeah, much better. Yeah. Because that, yeah. that movie is not good. So. <laughs> I liked it when I first saw it, but at the same time, I, I was thinking about movies like Scanners, and yeah. Firestarter just wasn't quite edgy enough. <laughs> yeah, sc Scanners holds up. Uh, Firestarter, not so much. So that one shot of Drew Barrymore's hair kind of flying with the barn on fire still looks cool, but everything else in that movie is, yeah, you know, it's been been done before, uh, yeah. but, and done better. But well, when it, when it comes to him getting fired from Firestarter, definitely that would have been a completely different movie, and that might, uh, I guess, soil his view. But if you make something and you know in your heart that it's it's brilliant, it's good. I don't I don't know why you would ever, uh, I guess, question your own ability, and I don't know why he would think this wasn't a good movie. I mean, sure, it was a flop in the box office, but. Since then, it's become this cult classic. 
Oh, and, yeah. I think it's even gotten above cult at this point. It's become really yeah. mainstream. I mean, they made a remake of it because it had so much buzz for so yeah. many years, and that's what got the, the prequel remake even started, was people were like, man, with all we ever hear about in sci-fi communities is the thing. Maybe we should go back to that. And, you know, they weren't wrong. I mean, it, was, it wasn't a bad <laughs> idea, so... I, I think, too, I find it interesting that he doesn't like the score on this, and I think that's completely because he didn't necessarily have the entire hand in it. But for years, I didn't know this wasn't a John Carpenter score. I mean, it feels just like all of his scores. I know, right? Yeah. I think uh, it's because he went for, um, like, he Morricone had a bunch of different ideas already out there, and... John Carpenter picked the one that sounded the most like a John Carpenter score because from my understanding was there was like a more traditional score and then there was like the electronic score that we got in the movie. And so uh, of the options that were offered, uh, John Carpenter went with the one that felt the most like a John Carpenter score. But I think it's just like different enough that it rankles the, you know, the curmudgeon in him. Yeah. The thing is though, I, I can't imagine this film with an orchestral score, what it would feel like. Like the minimalist sort of thumping of those, you know, Wurlitzers and, and all that, you know, uh, automated drum machines and programming and stuff, which at the time was, you know, still really cutting edge and took, it took five people to do, you know, to, to make that work. Now you can just do it on your laptop, right? But the, back in those days, this took something to, to pull off. And the way it, it builds to the ominous of all of this because this, this thing about this movie is it's in like this stark white place. I mean, it's bright for so much of the time. And yet those scenes are just as scary as when they're in the dark with it. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, that's what gets me about this is you know, so much of Halloween works because it's all about lights and shadows and Dean Cundy in the dark. Right. But this movie is it's bright and it's right there in front of you. And it's the, the truly alien nature of it and the way it just comes out of nowhere sometimes nothing really gets the goat in this film. Exactly. It's there's, you know, the one scene in the film when he says, you're not all attacking me right now. So I know you're not all turned yet. And it's like out in the open, but you know, hiding in plain sight. And so it doesn't matter if it's daylight or night. I want to ask y'all about the thing too, just the alien itself for a minute here. McCready, you know, has this whole idea that you know, all it's going to do is hibernate and then it's going to try to get to population. But what do you think the the end game for this creature is exactly? It's it's a virus. It's just replicating. That's what viruses do. They just keep replicating their cells, and that's what it's doing to its victims. It's just taking over their cells and then imitating it. I mean, so we see it. Yeah, we kind of see it later with the blood test. It's not. It's not really sentient. I don't think. I, I think it is. It can mimic sentience, but I don't think it is capable of some kind of great plan. I think it's just a, a thing that's that is driven to to spread itself and to survive. Yeah, see, you hit the word that I like, the survive word. It's instead of having a purpose or a bend uh, of like Michael Myers or the gang in Assault Precinct on 13, you know, all of that kind of stuff, it doesn't have a motive necessarily other than just to live. And I think that's why, and because I saw them together too, but I've, I've always sort of equated this movie and the original Alien sort of together in that same pile because that – 
that original xenomorph is just trying to survive in a hostile environment to itself. The fact that it has to kill all the crew is because they're threatening it in a lot of ways. I'm not picking up for the alien, but I mean, that's, that's kind of what it sounds like I'm doing, right? But the thing, the, I mean, you, we, what we learn here, and this is a pickup from the, the 1950s movie, is that the Norwegian crew found the thing and they blasted its, its ship out of a thermite, right? Or with thermite, they blasted it out of the ice. So they basically woke it up. And along with Captain America, and and then all you know everything broke loose from there. So it is a virus. That's a great way to describe it, Justin. Is that it's very much a virus. But but it still does have somewhat of uh, I guess wisdom or a plan because it knows when to expose itself and when not to. So it does have some logic there. Yeah, but I think that's. You know, I think a lot of that is based off of the like the situation that it finds itself in. I think it's it, it's kind of like you know you don't know you're sick until your body is overcome with whatever illness you have. Exactly. Like, yeah. You can kind of yeah. feel it catching up on you, and then all of a sudden you're sneezing and water guys and blowing your nose and and all that good stuff. So I think it was a situation where, like we saw closer to the end, uh, when Wilfred Brimley comes back and and uh, smashes his hand on that guy's face, that <laughs> that's when it became all right. So we now we're on even footing. We can be more open about what we are. We can be more active because it's not me and you know eleven. It's not me, the monster, and eleven other people. It's two of us and two of them or two of me and two of them. Right. You know, I never thought about it till you just said that Ron, but I, this feels like part of the influence for the Vincent D'Onofrio bug in the original men of black men in black. It's kind of the same motivation. Yeah. <laughs> and and I, I'm just wondering what on earth were these research people doing out there with grenades and flamethrowers? <laughs> yeah, okay, you, you hit on one thing I was going to ask is, look, I, I'm a big nerd, so I always looked up what what real the real job was of the movie I was watching or whatever. And I remember reading for years, I've read about the, the Antarctic expeditions and stuff, and they're not soldiers. <laughs> they don't have M16s and pineapple grenades. They don't have any of that stuff. Like the fact that they have thermite just to use is kind of amazing when you think about it. Like I don't I don't know what the idea of I you would have to have some kind of small arms, I get it, maybe to hunt or to defend yourself from, you know, polar bear or something like that maybe, but like you don't need an arsenal out there. No. Well, you need an arsenal because you know who else is on Antarctica? Soviets. That's what, what if they you know, start yeah. acting up. I forgot the, the we are in the Cold War. You're right. But why would the Norwegians have weapons though? I thought they were strictly neutral. Uh, apparently, they have grenades <laughs> and thermite. I know, right? <laughs> Pretty good stuff too. But the guy's a lousy shot though. He can't hit that helmet for anything. But uh, <laughs> I know, like, uh, and and my other beef that I have to take here is every time there's a fire. They're like Johnny on the spot with those, uh, you know, fire extinguishers. I'm like, let it burn a little longer, <laughs> please. <laughs> Just, I, I kind of got the sense, though, that like a fire in a small quarter situation like that could be really detrimental to whatever else they were doing. So they were probably all the, fire drilled you know, out of their mind. Uh, 
I, I guess so, because, I mean, even the the Norwegian helicopter, when it, when it blows up in the beginning, you're like, they're out there, like, putting it out. I'm like, dude, it, it exploded. There's no survivors. Just stand around and get warm. <laughs> Just, you know. <laughs> they do have some some great parkas, though. I mean, it does look like a scene out of, like, Empire Strikes Back, which I think is another reason I sort of took to this movie as a kid. Everyone was dressed like Han Solo. You know, so I mean, they all kind of look like it just didn't have the tauntaun to freeze in, you know, so, uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, it, it is, it is a stark place though. And we, it is, we're just thrown right into this movie. That's the other thing is there's no real setup to any of it. There's no crawl. There's nothing. It's just boom, 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 boom. And then this helicopter shooting at this dog running across the snow and, uh, Kurt Russell's pouring scotch into his computer because it cheats. So, I mean, yeah. it's kind of. And, and appa- apparently, there was deleted scenes that didn't make the final cut that introduced all the characters. And John Carpenter said, no way. I'm and glad I'm like, Thank- that was a good call. Yeah. Because yeah. I think the first 30 minutes of this after the opening scene is nothing but character introduction anyway. It would have yeah. been too much. Yeah. Yeah. His, his, his tendency for minimalism. Uh, really kind of works out here, I think, in a way that it, it doesn't, it hasn't always worked out for him. Um, what a, uh, I like that we keep talking about the environment that this is shot in because I think that's one of the things that makes it, uh, one of the things that helps the daytime scenes be as effective as they are, as unnerving as they are, is because this is such a weird looking place. Uh, you know, there's nowhere that, most people never go to an environment like this. And if they do it's because, you know, they're being made to go by some sort of nebulous government research grant or because they want to go look at the Aurora Borealis. But in a lot of ways, Antarctica has a lot of similarity to like the desert in terms of it being as close to an alien atmosphere on earth as we're going to get. And they actually recorded the wind, uh, you know, make it, you know, the, the sound of the wind on the Antarctic in the desert out, out in California. So it's sort of ironic. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's perfect that they used. I didn't know that they had used that, but it makes a ton of sense. Ron, you're making a great point. And I think that's the interesting part here is you've got an alien being that is pitted against humans that are also in an alien place to them. I mean, there's nowhere else where you can replicate that, Right. And so it becomes they're they're fighting against the elements as much as they're doing anything else. And the elements are hostile to both parties, which I think is really important because the alien doesn't gain an advantage by going outside and skulking around. Um, It's just as vulnerable to that cold as everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. And it's theorized that uh, when, uh, I forgot his name, but Wilford Brimley, when he's going and axing the the computer room and the uh, radio room, he's already infected. And so the thing is saying, um, I don't think I'm getting out of here, so I'm going to go back into hibernation. Yeah, go ahead and dig back in, right? So, yeah. I wanted to ask you all that because you know, Blair's turn is, is a big part of this. That's Wilford Brimley's character. When did you think he was infected? And you, Justin, you said you think it's early on. What about you, Ron? Yeah, it definitely seems like he's infected really early on. Probably when – I'm going to say it's probably when he's doing that autopsy. I mean he is wearing gloves, but, man, there is a lot of blood and 
mysterious pieces going everywhere. Yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah. They, they go to the Norwegian camp, and of course it's in ruins, and they find that two-headed corpse, you know, which is yeah. such a freaky-looking thing. I mean, just what a... It's almost Giger-esque. Like, it really feels yeah. that way, and it's not sexual enough, I guess, but it's still the same kind of idea, but it's just grotesque, but in a way that, like, I want to keep staring at it to figure out how the hell did that happen? Mm-hmm. And why did they bag it up and bring it back? <laughs> well, these are scientists, man. Like they're they're uh, eternally curious. I think I think that's what we're supposed to believe. I'm with you though. I, I do remember. I, I can't get my wife to watch many of the things we review, but occasionally I can. We've watched this once. And she was like, Mm-mm, "Don't touch that." New, new, new. Bad juju. <laughs> you got to pull out your disposable camera, take a few pictures, and then go back to camp. Yeah, it's like new. No, we forget that even existed. <laughs> that that camp over there. That's their problem. Do you think it makes a difference that this took place in like 1982 prior to like AIDS? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We we didn't talk about communicable disease the way that we do now. Yeah. When it looks like at some point they're like poking this thing with like their unprotected bare hands. Oh, yeah. They've got pencils after it and they're sitting there with a coffee mug going like, what do you think, Blair? I mean, non-sterile environment completely oh but but the ultimate is at the end when they're doing the blood test and they're using the same scalpel and uh, i think his name is windows he he like wipes it off on his sleeve in between yeah. you know cutting and i'm like really you think one of them is an alien they're they can take over your cells and you're cutting everybody with the same knife good idea guys i, I bet yeah. you the guy's I mean, like i'm in the cold everything's sterile that's probably what he was thinking that's the kind of dumb logic i would have used in the boy scouts so but, I mean, even in the 80s, hepatitis was a thing. <laughs> you think? Yeah, but maybe not in Antarctica. I don't know. <laughs> so, I, yeah, I can, it's too cold to get hepatitis. <laughs> it's too cold for the hepatitis. The other thing is, I, I, can, I can write it off as, they're so freaked out by what's happening to them, they're not really thinking through the logical steps of stuff. Like, we should just totally quarantine this and not, not fool with this anymore. But it's too late anyway. By the time that yeah. the movie starts, the dog's there. They're infected from the – I mean, they're all dead, basically, from the minute this movie starts. Which mm-hmm. – this is another thing, too. And I talk about – you know the, the 50s film was a – uh, you know, product of its time and its and its politics and all that kind of stuff. And I feel like this one is too, because the you know people think of the '80s and they think like you know excess and Wall Street and all that kind of stuff. But that was the late '80s. 1982, everything sucked and everybody hated everything. The president had just got shot by somebody who was in love with Jodie Foster, so we were all like trying to figure that out, right? With gas was was a price was missed. We still had problems in Iran. The economy was in the toilet. It sounds kind of like today, but. I mean, I mean, there was there was there was a nihilism to Americana at the time, and I think this movie reflects that. I think there was a lot of apocalyptic movies at the late seventies and early eighties. So this is very apocalyptic. They're at the end of the world, battling an alien. Yeah, and and those kind of apocalyptic scenarios are definitely like John Carpenter's thing. Yeah. Not the thing, but like a thing John Carpenter <laughs> likes to do. Yes, you're right. But also John Carpenter's the thing. <laughs> it works both ways, see? So. <laughs> so who do you think was the first one infected? Well, that's a good one. I, I'm i going to go with Blair, but I could be wrong. I was on your side with that, Justin. I get to say I, I've always thought he was the thing from the get-go, but uh-huh. – yeah, I could definitely go with Blair as the first one getting infected. 
it just seems really, you know, either Blair or Clark, because Clark's the one who's hanging out with the dog. Right. But remember, but remember, he kills Clark at the end and he and he tests his blood. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. See, that's the twisted it, part of it is that yeah. he, he murders somebody. That's what and, yeah, that's the the moral compass lesson of this is you become so suspicious, you murder somebody and then, oh, wow, he actually wasn't guilty. And I absolutely was like, it's Clark, it's Clark the entire time. Even knowing it wasn't him watching it again, I was like, it's Clark. He was the one that the, they showed the shadow and the dog goes in the room. It's Clark, you know, just all day long. And Clark's always kind of weird and awkward anyways. So That's Richard Masser, <laughs> I, I think, though. I mean, he just kind of plays that even when he's not intending to. Like, if, I don't know if you remember the, uh, the ensemble movie uh, Parenthood, um, but yeah. he's in that as the – I think he's – Lee Phoenix's mother's boyfriend teacher, something like that. But he's creepy in that too. <laughs> and he doesn't even intend to be. That's why they gave him the great role in the Stephen King it. He was great as a disembodied head. I mean, yeah. he's, he's just a weird kind of dude. He's just got that. I'm a car salesman, but I'm thinking about murdering you in my basement kind of look on his face. That's maybe I've listened to your show too much, Justin. I don't know, but I mean, that's, that's <laughs> yeah. what he comes off as, but that you're right. Like you're led to believe it's him for so much. And the fact that he gets murdered in all of this <laughs> is the, the ironic, uh, sadness of all of it. Well, and you think it's him. And then when the dog is changing, he, he kicks the cage door closed on the tentacles and then runs and gets like an axe. But then he's kind of suspiciously absent from the rest of that scene when they're killing the thing. And so it's it's so much of a misdirection there. Uh, it's, it's brilliant because, again, I thought it was him the entire time. But who was the guy that they actually burn out on the ice whose hand is all, you know, monstrified? Who was that? Um, I forgot the guy's name. The, kind of the bald guy. Uh. That wasn't copper, was Bennings. it? Bennings. Bennings, yes. Bennings, yes. <laughs> yes. See, that's the other thing, too. The ensemble, they all start running together at some point. It's like, the other white guy. No, the other one. Yeah. So. Yeah. But but Bennings could have been the first thing, but then infected somebody else. You know? It's like, uh, who is it? <laughs> can, can we talk about the fact that Gary Donald Moffat pulls out a pistol and shoots the surviving Norwegian at the beginning of this movie. <laughs> Just, I mean, I know the guy is speaking in foreign language and firing a weapon at you, but he pulls out that dirty Harry, like nobody's business. Just puts the guy down. Well, it was well, a mass also, shooting. Center. He also shot one of the, the scientists. So, I mean, yeah. are you going to let him get away with that? <laughs> I don't, he, he doesn't last long enough to get away with much but yeah so it is it but is yeah. strange though but i think again that's supposed to show us like people have stress reactions in different paranoid you know in different paranoid ways right and his is to grab his gun i was gonna say he always carries it on his hip so he's always got it he's like the cowboy yeah that was a weird thing about him but speaking of weird i want to talk about that dog and how awesome of a performance they get out of that that wolf dog. Yes. Uh, Jed. That's it. The dog's name is Jed. Yeah. Jed, un- Jed gives an incredible performance. You are right. Just that one scene where they're pushing him into the, the kennel and how unnatural he moves and lays there and how undog like it looks. Oh, yeah. Is, is just disturbing immediately. Like, I, 
uh, immediately worry, start worrying about those dogs every time they kind of kick Jed into that thing. Because Jed's clearly not – it's, it's a dog, but it's not a dog because it's not doing any dog-like things. Right, yeah, it's, it's like, so awkward. It's like the thing doesn't know that creature at all. It's never encountered one of those. So it doesn't know how to act like it. Like when it encounters humans, you don't get the sense this is the first time it's come across them. So it at least has some bit of viral memory of oh, this is what they do. But maybe it's never found a dog like that, and it's like I don't know what this thing does. What does it? Does it walk upright? No, you know, it doesn't know what it to do. And I, I've looked at that always as the the thing doesn't know how to act like the dog, so it acts weird. And is that why uh, Blair ends up killing the dogs with the axe later? Because he's like, eh, you know, I don't need these things anymore. I don't need to absorb I, them. Or or if I do absorb with them, then I don't know how to behave and they can find me easier. See, I think if you go with our theory that he's the thing pretty much the whole time, they're going to give him away at some point. Yeah. And he's like, no, I can take care of those. And it'll also throw suspicion off of me. If I actually go and kill one of my replicants. Yeah. And the, and the dogs clearly, um, detect the thing and react negatively to it. Mm-hmm. That's so I think th- there is something to kind of covering its own tracks. That's a thing though, in horror movie tropes though, right? Like the dogs, the cats, the cats usually are evil. Sorry, Ron, but the dogs <laughs> do usually find like they know when something's wrong. Right. And they're usually the first alert to a lot of that stuff. Yeah. They always, because, yeah. Dogs are more attuned to like, uh, discomfort, I think. So the, the dog would sense immediately that one of these guys is, decidedly anxious and un, un, uncomfortable around the others. Yeah. I mean, we, we give dogs these superpowers because they do have superpowers. They can smell anything. They can sense earthquakes before they happen. They, you know, in most movies they can sense paranormal activity and whatever. And so this isn't anything out of the ordinary for the dog to sense that this is an alien. This is not something that's normal. And, and let's not forget how much dogs hate Terminators. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's just another point for the dog. Exactly. That, my, my dogs hate, hate my Roomba. <laughs> <laughs> but my Roomba just fell down the stairs and I'm thinking, okay, uh, Skynet's never going to happen anytime soon. If this stupid <laughs> robot doesn't know where a ledge is. We're a few years away, so, but judgment yeah, day is inevitable. So don't, don't forget. I love how Blair, though, when he's doing his autopsy, talks about that the dead thing is still active on a cellular level or whatever, however he says it. And I'm like, this is interesting because if he's the thing, it's revealing its secrets to them. And I'm wondering, like, does it know, like, well, this is really going to freak him out, you know, <laughs> or, or is it just like, well, if I talk science they'll leave me alone. I mean, I, I wonder what it's trying to do. It's a good question because is he infected at that point or is he infected when they go back and check on him and he says he wants out and he's got the noose there, you know, like maybe, maybe he had that noose because he was getting infected or he was going to take his life before, you know, trying to prevent himself from getting infected. So maybe when he's talking science, science, he still is human, but he gets infected from that. I don't know. I was going to say, yeah. is he just paranoid naturally or does getting infected make him more paranoid? I think he's paranoid naturally and I think getting infected makes him more paranoid. 
because I think that as we've seen, as we see throughout the movie, it's not like a, an instantaneous process where you get bitten by the thing and you turn into the thing or whatever. It's a, it's a, it's a change on a cellular level. Like as we saw with the, the, the asteroid, uh, Atari graphic, um, computer program that Wolfram Brimley's playing with. Like, like we're supposed to believe Wolfram Brimley can use a computer. <laughs> That's the same computer program that the Silver Shamrock Corporation has. I just want y'all to know that. It's, yeah. it's the same same thing, but and works on about the same level. But and it's the same uh, glider uh, thing when uh, Snake Plissken is flying into New York too. Yes. Oh, that's right. Very good. Yeah. And and like the next version of it is whatever the crazy people in Superman three had when they were shooting missiles at Superman in the middle of the desert for. Yeah, whatever the hell reason they were doing that, I don't remember. So I, that movie's awful too. But anyway, um, I do like though that McReady's the one that I I think he's just as paranoid as Blair, but he's able to kind of keep it together because he's all about we're going to kill it, we're going to destroy it. He's sort of the chief Brody of Jaws two of this. I felt like he was like, no, nah, we're getting rid of this right now, and I'm like this guy's a helicopter pilot. So I know helicopter pilots. They're not just like natural, you know, Rambos all of a sudden. Um, you know, I'll work with one as a matter of fact, he's one of like the neatest, nicest, nerdiest dudes ever. I can't imagine Frank killing anybody or anything like that. It's so interesting to watch the, I'm like, McCready's got to have a heck of a backstory where like he was born in the circus or something. And there was a truck driver. And I don't know. I mean, he's, he's kind of a MacGyver. He, well, he, he probably his, was in Vietnam. That that was his original backstory that they never introduced in the movie was he was a Vietnam helicopter pilot. That makes total sense too with the time yeah. frame. Yeah. I mean, he kind of looks like a, a Vietnam veteran. That's why I think he's off in that shack by himself. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. The long hair Drink. and all that. Yeah, half drunk and cursing at his computer chess. So. Uh. Yeah, but they. For whatever reason, they they cut that scene of the introductions, and that was supposed to be his backstory. And of course, that makes sense. He's drinking his PTSD away and in, in his own shack away from everyone. Absolutely, but and you wonder too, like what would make somebody take a job like that? Probably to get away from everything. Yeah. You want to do that? I mean, like you can go look up the Antarctic research stations now that like Rand runs and stuff like that, and they'll flat tell you in the application process. You have to be able to deal with working alone. No, like really, really alone for long periods of time if you're yeah. going to do this because it's not for everybody. So, and that's nowadays, you know, when we have telecommunication, but even up there, it's still pretty, you know, spotty. But I mean, they are really cut off from everything up there. You know, it takes forever just to get a rescue signal out. Do you so, what think, um, do you think uh, Blair's diabetes? had anything to do with his response to this thing. <laughs> I've never thought about that before. <laughs> I mean, it's Wilford Brimley, so he has to be, the character has to be diabetic as well. But do you think like, you know, uh, blood sugar makes people do weird things. Do you think like that might've had some effect on the, the metamorphosis process, slowing it down so that we could get Blair to give us our science exposition dump before he becomes um, the ultimate destroyer of radio equipment. <laughs> it could be. 
well, well, now my whole theory of him being infected first is blown out of the water. And when he's got the axe and he's messing up the radio room, he just needed a Snickers, right? <laughs> so, yeah. He's hanging. Yeah, it's, the, it's the very first Snickers commercial. <laughs> How has DirecTV not co-opted? That? Oh, he's dead. Never mind. That's where else they probably would have. You know, redoing the old is commercials. Yeah, I think Wilford Brimley's been gone for a while now. It's, I mean, he, I've always known him as the old man in that thing. So I can't imagine he's still with us. I mean, uh, so, yeah, so you know, he's still alive. He's way. still alive. You know, you're right. I just, he's 82. Holy cow. Well, good for you, Anthony Wilford Brimley. So, <laughs> but maybe, maybe you're actually on to something here, Ron. And I'll, I'll explain my, my logic here. Uh, the, the one guy who, um, his chest opens up and he cuts the guy's arms off. Remember he was infected for a while and he was kind of slowing down. And then it's like, he has a heart attack. Yeah. Norris has a heart attack. Yeah. Yeah. So, but obviously he was infected and the heart, he wasn't having a heart attack. He was changing into the thing. Um, so maybe Wilford's diabetes was slowing the process down. Is that the is that the that's the guy who looks like uh, the love child of Meatloaf and Joe Don Baker, right? <laughs> yes, that okay. is excellent casting. So, yes, Charles Hallahan. So, so I mean, the the thing can take you over fairly quickly, or it can slowly take you over. And with him, with Norris, it it was more of a slow takeover. I like the idea that when it replicates that it has varying degrees of speed by doing it and it probably based on the size of the thing of the person too or the thing it's taking over right the dog's or like a bit the, smaller more active or like the complexity of the organism yeah and how yeah. much of it actually gets into like the bloodstream oh so like if you get more thing in you there's more it works faster yeah like when um uh blair grabs uh what's his name by the face like that seemed to be a pretty quick change process, but I also get the feeling that, you know, Blair rammed a lot of thing tentacles into the, to, I forget the guy's name, into his face. Or, or when the, uh, the conspiracy theory guy that was talking about chariots of the gods, when he is the first guy he does the blood test on, and then he grabs the other guy and starts eating him through his big mouth head, and then uh, Windows, who's getting eaten, he tosses him aside, and he, Windows starts changing almost immediately. Oh, he does, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that so. that blood test scene, man, that is one of like the best builds of tension in, in a movie that's full of just nothing but tension anyway. Like it's so great the way that they, in, in spite of all the medical uh, malpractice going on and stuff with the same scalpel and all that, just the you're just waiting for like it to jump at the next one and at the next one. And it's almost like the thing realizes, eh, the gig is up, screw it. And just goes haywire in that room all of a sudden. Cause it's, it's cornered really. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it reacts like an animal, which is why McGreedy burns both windows and Palmer at the same time. So but, but um, then the head escapes for a bit. <laughs> yeah. The, the running down the hallway. You got to admit the transformations at, you know, from the, the chest eating to the, the head that bites one off the head running down. The, those things look amazing. The effects work in this was transcendental for the time, but good grief. It still holds up. I mean, it looks so good. Justin, you're the big fan of, 
practical effects over CGI effects. Why do you think these yeah. hold up? Because uh, they're just they they're so quick that you can't sit there and look at them and see the the zippers <laughs> um, or something like that. I mean, one of my favorite movies is Dreamscape, but I go back and watch that now, and I'm like, yeah, that looks like a rubber mask now. That's yeah. stupid. <laughs> I rewatched um, that recently again. By the way, what a trip. <laughs> If, and I, I, this is blasphemy, but if they were to ever remake Dreamscape, I would be happy because it was one of my favorite movies and I'd hope that they would improve upon it. But usually, they usually don't you get the right um, people. But, <laughs> they might. But yeah. But I, I, I the thing is definitely one of it sets the bar for practical effects. And I guess I'm so spoiled by this movie that when I even when I watch, you know, The Walking Dead or Game of Thrones today and I see them CGI blood splatter, I'm like, why are you doing that? Just just blow up a blood packet, man. <laughs> it doesn't take much. Um, I, well, I it's just, one of, like one of the amazing things about this movie is that you're not just getting, you know, Rob Botton doing all the special effects. You're also getting Stan Winston doing special effects, too. Yeah, they had literally two of the best special effects people who have ever lived working on the same movie. And I mean, Stan Winston only did the the dog creature, but man, that is a great looking monster. Well, that and you've got one of the greatest cinematographers of the 20th century, Dean Cundy, shooting it. I mean, I can't say enough about that guy. And just I mean, the list of things the man has shot and made come to life for us, you know, from Halloween to this to Back to the Future to Jurassic Park. You know, I mean, Dean Cundy made a lot of fake things look very real and very good by being able to cut at the right spot to light it just the right way. And, and it was always something different too. I think that's one thing about him that I always liked is he worked in a lot of different spaces. You know, we talked about the atmosphere of this film and stuff, and there is so much light around it and it's that you get to see it, but you still can't see the strings. I mean, that's, that's real artistry. Uh, But beyond just the, you know, just looking at it and going, God, that looks amazing. It's freaky as hell. I mean, oh, yeah. you see somebody's head walking down the hallway. I'm like, no, that is not supposed to happen. So, yeah. and, that, and that, I think, is one of the reasons why the special effects still hold up so well. They don't have to look completely natural. They have mm-hmm. to look like a mockery of the human form. Mm-hmm. So you're going to get some of uncanny valley-ness that's going to add to the discomfort you feel by watching that head sprout eyeballs and or, or tentacles or eye stalks and and skitter off on gross fleshy spider legs it kind of looks like a human face but like horribly distorted by some sort of unnatural uh you know xenomorph parasite (laughs) parasite thing so you're right it's alien so it doesn't have to yeah it doesn't have to look it's not going to look like a person anymore, but it looks enough like a person that you can see that this is like a gross mockery of human flesh. And, uh, you know, David Cronenberg made a whole career on that. <laughs> yes, yes, he did indeed. So we get down to our final four, though, that survived. McGreedy, Gary, Knowles, and, and Childs are the ones that are left. And when the other three find Childs gone – that that sets everything else into motion where they're like we're gonna we're gonna blow up the ship and take our chances in the shuttle we're gonna blow it to and my thought is like 
what's the plan here? All the transports are gone. All the dogs are dead. If we just blow it all up, we're going to kill it. But did they ever verbalize the plan to survive? Or is it just like, and then we'll figure it out? Is it like steal they, underpants uh, and profit? You know? they, they said, let's raise the temperature. And I'm like, why? Don't you want it to freeze? <laughs> I don't, it was a really poor plan. But again, this is John Carpenter and everything's got to go out with a big bang. So this he's blowing it all up. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, that t- I think by the time that there's only four of them left, they realize that they're not going to survive no matter what. So then it's a decision to save humanity is what you're saying. Yes, which is why they don't want it to freeze. Because if it freezes, somebody will come and pick it up and take it back to civilization and bury it somewhere. Or or they'll try to weaponize it and sell it or something like yeah. that. And then Yeah, so yeah. you have to keep it from freezing and you have to kill it somehow. Right. So they get all the dynamite in the world <laughs> lives in Antarctica. I just didn't get them going room to room, you know, just blowing up everything. I guess it, maybe they're thinking, I don't know where it's hiding, so we're just going to blow this whole place up. But I. That was my thought. I, that, and I think at that point, they had figured out that it can infect you so many different ways. So the only way to to really eradicate it is to sterilize the place. And fire is the one thing that does that. So I always took it as they were just blowing up everything behind them so that they could wipe out any remnants. Yeah, because they do make a point of mentioning uh, contamination and how they should only eat out of cans, etc. Yeah. Which is funny in the end when Childs and McCready share that drink. We'll talk about that. But, yeah, that goes out the window <laughs> at that point. But, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it wasn't a concern when they were blood testing each other. <laughs> I guess at that point they were like, well, the last time we weren't, we weren't uh, mm-hmm. healthy. Look what happened. So, but no, we we get that great showdown though, where Blair becomes that huge monster and attacks and everything. And I'm like, man, I've seen so many movies rip this off in the end now. Like Leviathan is one that comes to mind, where Peter Weller throws dynamite at the really crappy monster and stuff. And this is the only time when I look at it and I'm like, okay, that that one doesn't look as good as some of the other ones. Like I'll ding the effects in the end because when it goes into Godzilla mode, it doesn't doesn't really work as well. It's funny you said Leviathan because I was thinking Tremors. Oh, that's you know, a good when one. It's, well, where when was it's my like, can you fly sucker fly line then? Because, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, in Tremors, they're under the ground, but you see the ground bubbling up. And at the end of the thing, it's all those planks are just getting shot up into the air as it's coming forward and, and nothing's going to stop it. So, yeah. I credit a lot of that to the barrels and jaws and how that that was the standard way to build when something was coming after you at that point. It was, you didn't have to show it till it was right on top of you. Yeah. It, it, to me, it kind of reminds me of the, the trap they set for the thing in the thing from another world where they've got the, uh, where they set up the, like the electrical trap using the generator. Yeah. They and basically how they have to set up like, stand on the it. pieces of wood yeah. to, to not electrocute themselves. It kind of made me think of that for, for whatever reason. That's a good so point. Was, was that a nod at the end of John Carpenter's thing when he says, where's the generator? And they say it's gone. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously Carpenter loves that movie. I mean, this, that's what drove him to want to do this anyway. Was He was thinking yeah. about it when he was doing Halloween. That's why he got the clearance rights to put it all over those you know, uh, 
uh, TV sets and stuff in there. So I, yeah, I could see that completely. That makes sense. But we do we do get out of the, the final big explosions. McCready triggers the big blast, and everything's blown away. And I want to ask you guys about the end here, because I I go back to my theme again about the early '80s and the nihilism of the times. Like this is a serious downer ending. Like this is where we're telling the audience, nope, everybody's going to die. And this is also interesting that the alien is like. Eh, fuck it, I'll get drunk with you too. You know, <laughs> I mean, that, I, th- I think Childs is the alien, and McCready's like, yeah, okay, I'm just gonna wait until I freeze to death, and then you can freeze here too, you some bitch. <laughs> um, I have problems because there's that whole theory of the uh, the eye light. What what is it like the eye flare? Oh yeah, the and glimmer. You, yeah, the, yeah. And so if you're human, you have a glimmer in your eye, and if you're the thing, you don't. And uh, John Carpenter even goes so far as to say, well, if you're looking at their breath, McCready's breathing because you can see his the breath in the cold air. Right. And Childs, you don't see his breath. But meanwhile, Childs has an earring in his ear. So it's like, okay, well, is he changing into the thing so he's still childs or is he already the thing but then he wouldn't have the earring because the the thing doesn't take jewelry (laughs) and and they play with that in the prequel too there's another bit with that with the ear it winds up on the wrong ear or something if memory serves but yeah yeah Uh, so i got problems with that because i'm thinking okay the and the eye flare that doesn't happen anywhere else in the movie. And yeah. it's so subtle in that final scene that I'm like, I can't make sense out of this. I, so I, Yeah, I feel like that is like what we're watching it so frame by frame and we found a thing to just latch on to. That's Texas sharpshooter fallacy where we just shoot the hell out of the barn and then we find the best grouping and paint the target around it. You know, that <laughs> that's what that feels like to me. Uh, okay, Rod, you, you weigh in. You've heard us <laughs> chatter about it. I don't know if the thing's powers allow it to grow earrings because it it clearly has clothes on um it, like it, it creates clothing but i don't know if it created like buttons and and zippers and and stuff like that or just stuff that looked like clothes i guess you're right there it does create clothing because it shreds out of their clothes and then it looks like them again with clothes so it's why kinda, couldn't it do yeah it's kind of t1000y that way you know it could do everything except moving parts, maybe. I don't know. That's, that's an interesting thought. It, you can look at it a lot of ways. One is Childs is the thing, and McCready's just like, Mm-mm, yeah, we'll just wait this out, and they you know, share some gasoline or whatever they're drinking together, J&B. Or they're neither the thing, but neither one of them are going to trust each other because how the heck can you at that point? And they're like, yeah, we'll just sit out here and freeze to death then. Cause, See, I always leaned really heavily towards the – Neither one of them is the thing, but there's so much mistrust between the two of them that they've just decided, well, let's sit here until we die. Yeah. Yeah. It's even if Childs is the thing that they might just freeze to death. Like, like it might not even kill McCready or whatever's uh, Max because it's like, I don't need to even kill you because you're going to freeze to death. And and then if I freeze, too, it'll just look like two guys froze to death and then it won't be as uh suspicious if i tear you apart <laughs> yeah so if i sit here i can go dormant freezing in this body and then when they come and pick us up well then that's when i can propagate you know yeah it's back to a situation where it benefits more by hiding what it is 
Mm-hmm. Yes. So it's not going to reveal itself needlessly as we, you know, discovered throughout the movie. Yeah. I mean, well, and that's the thing about this movie that, and about the alien that is so neat is that it, it changes its MO as the situation changes. And then it ultimately comes back to where it was to begin with. It's like, hey, maybe I'll just wait it out. Cause even if it's not one of them, it's somewhere around there. So yeah. it's, it's sitting over in the corner going, which one? Eh, maybe I'll just wait them both out. You know? Yeah. I mean, and there's they, they they put all the fires out so fast that there's corpses of it laying all over the <laughs> the the camp that it's going to come back even if it's not Childs. It's definitely an Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru situation. Whoever rolls in the next morning and sees all that, right? They're like, "Ooh, yeah. you know, that's a." I don't I don't know what what would even become of that because look, this is a government facility. They're not just going to leave it sitting there. It might take them a while to get there, but you know they're coming. Yeah. Or if they're not, the Russians who are spying on us are going to come over and check it out, right? Like, that would have been the sequel, the Russian thing. Oh, yeah, the Russian thing. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, the sequel that never happened. But See, this is Dolph Lundgren coming back as the, <laughs> as the McCready role. <laughs> that would have been awesome. So, <laughs> so that's why Ivan Drago was able to fight Rocky so well. He was actually a thing. That's yeah. Wow, we've tied these franchises together. <laughs> Yes, we've really created the, the thing expanded universe here. I'm, I'm telling you, it's uh, it's pretty amazing. But well, guys, I think we're at the point of the podcast where it's time to give final thoughts, recommendations, and Justin, we do popcorn ratings here. So extra large to small and burnt. Uh, we'll ask you first. What is your popcorn ratings and final thoughts for John Carpenter's The Thing? Oh, you know, I'm going with extra large with butter. It's it's one of my favorites. And I, I can't think of another. I mean, Alien and Aliens, two of my all time favorite kind of sci fi horror movies. But the thing is so different, so creative. I mean, I could never think of crab spider legs coming out of a head and then, you know, running off in any other movie. It just doesn't happen. So there it is. <laughs> Ron? Oh yeah, definitely extra large popcorn. Um, I love a, I love any movie where a guy catches on fire and you see the stuntman wandering around the scene while on fire. Uh, <laughs> and John Carpenter has is basically the master of that thing because I mean he's got it in the thing, he's got it in uh, in Halloween two. Halloween two, he's got it in. I think there's a guy, there's somebody on fire in the fog, maybe. I think so. There's there's somebody on fire and they live at some point. So yeah, yeah. there's somebody on fire in, in Big Trouble in Little China. Yep. So yeah, John Carpenter is Mister. Let's light some people on fire and let them wander around. <laughs> and I think it's great. Uh, extra large popcorn with butter with the fancy big thing of uh, flavoring salt you can sprinkle <laughs> on top of it, open up a thing of uh, chocolate-covered peanuts and dump it in there. It's just top-notch. There's a, there's a reason the thing is one of the most well-regarded horror movies in this day and age, and it, it holds up. It's as good now as it was in 1982, if not maybe better. Because we've seen other people try to do this thing and fail so badly at, at making this kind of movie that it makes the original look all the the more impressive. Yeah, 
I can't augment much of what you guys said. I agree with every bit of it. It's such a large popcorn. I'll say this. Halloween is one of my top five films of all time, no doubt. But if you were to ask me what's John Carpenter's best stuff, I'm going to tell you it's the thing. It's his best yeah. made film. I, I think it's top to bottom, even with the, the problems. And we picked some of it you know, here and some of the mm-hmm. nitpicking of it. But even that is, is minuscule compared to how good this movie is and how well it still works. I mean, we're talking about it 35 years later. Guys, which now that makes me feel really old, <laughs> but but I mean, if we're talking about it decades later and it still works, and to the point that when they tried to redo it in 2011, they got close, but nobody talks about that movie. People are still talking yeah. about this one, and th- that's how you know you've got something that's not only cult classic but it's timeless. And I think when it's all said and done for Carpenter, you know, he'll go down as Halloween and the thing, but I think. It, if you really ask folks to to divide between the two, I think the thing's the better film. I still have you know a special place in my heart for yeah, Escape from New York and and his other works, but the thing is the serious. This is you knocking it out of the park and Halloween, and I even liked Halloween too. Mm-hmm. So you know. Oh yeah, I'm I'm a fan of the whole series. You go back and listen to the whole thing, folks. I'll make apologies for Halloween Six. It's a lot of fun, so, <laughs> <laughs> but not part five. So, <laughs> but Justin, thanks so much for joining us on Filmstrip, man. It's been an absolute blast. Tell folks how they can find your podcast and uh, check out your stuff. Oh, uh, the Generation Y all spelled out. Uh, the words uh, we're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We probably even have a tumbler out there that i don't even know about uh and then peripheral uh just regular places you can listen to podcasts stitcher itunes uh google music all those places so cool absolutely thanks so much for being with us ron folks can follow your work over at den of geek right yes den of geek uh the walking dead's coming back fairly soon uh, they're trying to talk me into picking Fear the Walking Dead back up. I don't know if that's going to be a successful <laughs> attempt on their part or not. Um, yeah, uh, I'm there usually two to three times a week. Absolutely. Folks, of course, you can find our podcast, continuousplaypodcast.com slash movies. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast, continuousplaypodcast-filmstrip. You can also check out our side projects where we uh, sit around and talk about sports, continuousplaypodcast-sports uh, as well, and catch up with the rest of the gang. Uh, we do appreciate your support. If you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes or Google Play. It helps other people find the show and tell other folks about it. Again, Justin, thanks again for joining us. For Ron, I'm Jay. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, continuousplaypodcast.com forward slash movies. Please leave us a positive review on iTunes and link up with us on Facebook. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. <laughs>